0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from John 3, 1-17. through 17. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: And Anna Brooks, you did awesome. That's like the longest passage. Uh, we gave her the longest one, and we've given so many of uh, you all like the shortest little verses. So thank you. You did an awesome job. Thank you. Well, um, I came across an article through a friend. Um, it was an interesting one. It was actually on the uh, the hippie movement of the 60s, and we're not we're not talking like just you know, everyday hippies, people. That, we're talking like the actual hippies from uh, uh, out in San Francisco. And it was a really interesting one that um, was describing uh, what was going on in that time period in the rejection, that there was a slogan <clears throat> that was called Start from Zero. And it was this idea that the hippies had of, hey, let's just get down to basics. We don't need showers. We don't need anything. We're just going to cut all these things out. And start from zero. And this article, and particularly a man named Tom Wolfe, kind of go into what was, the, what was the product of that, what actually happened from that uh, movement. <clears throat> An article says this, at the uh, ashbury Free Clinic, there were doctors who were treating diseases no living doctor had ever encountered before. Diseases that had disappeared so long ago, they'd never even picked up Latin names, Because of all of the reducing to zero hygiene, this is what they kept seeing. Now listen to this, this is fascinating. Diseases, again, I wanna repeat this so you can kind of get this picture in your brain. So long ago that they had never even picked up Latin names such as, listen to these names, the mange, the grunge, the itch, the twitch, the thrush, the scroff, and the rot. says later the hippies as they became known sought nothing less than to sweep aside all codes and restraints of the past and start out from zero thus does their slogan start from zero but what Tom Wolfe began saying and this is actually the title of the article that's interesting the title of the article is called The Great Relearning Take a Bath that's actually what it was. You laughed, but that's actually, it was lit, basic things that we all should know, they need to relearn. It, 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 look, it, because they decided that, you know, hey, let's go to zero, let's level out. But there are basic things, he's saying it's the greatly learned. They had to, great, they had to relearn normalcy of hygiene, just showering, just, just do it every once in a while, just to kind of stay off, you know, the mange, if you will. But isn't that so true of us? Uh, we're, we're looking at a series now of, of encounters with Christ. And, you know, I, I think about these narratives in the Bible, and, and I love these narratives because they draw out so much for me um, about my own encountering Jesus in a million different ways. And, and this morning we're reading one that maybe is familiar to you, maybe the name is Nicodemus. He was... a was a great religious leader. But there's something about this encounter that he has that really causes him to recognize that there needs to be a great relearning. There is a complete confusion. You would think between two great theological giants, Nicodemus and Jesus, they would have this just incredible conversation, and you just sit there. But it, it, it seems like one of those people, particularly Nicodemus, is just you just figure out, he, what does he know at all? There's just this, this stripping away. <laughs> There's not a building up necessarily. He just continues to ask, how can this be? What, what are you talking about? And, and I think we, we hit this in our own lives, and I know I do. I'm in the midst of some of it right now in my own heart. Just, you know, you come to church, you, you talk about religious things, you talk about God. Maybe you even consider yourself a Christian and And you just kind of think, I got this. I really understand this. And something comes along and takes your legs out and you all of a sudden go, what do I really know? What what do I really understand? What are the basics of me understanding what it means to be a Christian? And, And I think it's so easy for us to take that for granted. It is so easy to, to, to rest ourselves on what we think we know, and yet we don't at all. I remember even thinking this way, this is just my DNA of even in college when my campus minister at the time, I was sitting with him just talking about my life, and he said just the most haunting thing that I continue to hear. He said, you know what? You always seem to think that you have your arms wrapped around the gospel. And then you don't. Because it just is something that we think we have. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, what do I really know anything? And here's how we experience that. We encounter it and seeing things in ourselves that we kind of go, why is that still, why do I keep having to go back to that? Why do I keep having to address this? Why do I see this pattern? Why is this constantly a struggle with my friends, my family, myself? Why is that? There's something here that's a great relearning. And this whole passage, if you were to look at it in Greek, and I know sometimes you're like, oh, the Greek. I'm not just saying that just because I want you to think I'm smart. I'm actually saying it because it helps kind of mine out things we wouldn't see. There's actually in Greek, if you were to read it, some complete confusion because there are similar words used for two totally different things. And you can see how Nicodemus would be like, What are you talking about? Because his mind is here. He thinks he has it as the teacher. And yet he doesn't. He's so far from it. I think there are three basic things we need to know. Basic things. This is basic. In this passage is God's kingdom. Who is God himself? And what is God's love? Right? What about God's kingdom? What about God? Who he is? And then what about his love? What is that? And Jesus tries to really build those blocks for him, and Lord willing for us this morning. As he looks at even the beginning here, in verses, first few verses, there's confusion on God's kingdom itself. It says that Nicodemus came, this ruler of the Jews, he came to him by night and he said, Rabbi, we know. That you're a teacher come from God. There's something about Jesus they'd already known. They had this preconceived notion. They understand that he's a religious leader. Maybe they were, he was attracted to the miracles, the way he led, his authority. There's all sorts of things you can read in the narrative accounts of Jesus that would cause a great man like Nicodemus to say, I need to go talk to this guy. I need to figure this out. But he doesn't just come in the middle of the day. He comes at night. And for two reasons. One is... If you read further in in John, you'll see in different chapters where eh, people were afraid to go talk to Jesus. To talk to him publicly, especially in the position that Nicodemus was in, having as much religious knowledge as he did, to come to talk to a really controversial figure in the middle of the day was a little bit dicey. And not to mention, there's also a pattern here in John's gospel, the author of this this narrative account, who really pits light and darkness against each other. There's a moment here where we're supposed to understand he's coming in darkness, not just to hide himself, but he's coming in darkness because he himself is in darkness. And he's coming to what would come right after this passage, to the light. There's confusion. And when it says he was a Pharisee, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. There were, just to break it down for you, a Pharisee was not one of these kind of, maybe you have this idea in your mind of this, this like religious leader who was kind of shrouded and would kind of, you know, find their, you know, positions and places of power. That's actually not who they were. When when the Jews were brought back in after exile, there were four sects of the Jews, There were the zealots who became very politically minded and began to fight against any authority or power through force, through sword. There were the Essenes who did the opposite. They escaped, they left, they went outside the city and started their own camps. They said, we're not going to have anything to do with this, we're going to be on our own. Typically kind of almost monastery-like there were the Sadducees who said, you know what, we're going, to kind of, we're going to get as much into the trenches as possible with power. And in the, in the process, they decided, ah, we'll, we'll decide to kind of give up some of the authority. They didn't believe in the resurrection or many, most of the books of the Old Testament. And they thought, eh, if, we're, if we capitulate enough with the positions of power, we'll be able to withhold, we'll be able to stand as a people. But the Pharisees were the one group of the four that did none of those things. They didn't go to extremes mostly on any of those things. What they did do is they said, we're going to live in this world, but we're going to try not to live of it. We're going to hold on to God's law. We're going to fence it. We're going to care for it, but we're also going to try and love God. We're going to be not just authorities uh, in the religious circles. We're also going to try and live in the populace of Rome and try and deal with that. They were the middle of the road people. They weren't running out. They weren't fighting this way. They were trying to live in the midst and be faithful that's who nicodemus is not such a bad guy but because of who he was he came in the midst of this and yet he was confused and notice he says this he says rabbi a teacher come from god but no for no one can do these signs that you do unless god is with him jesus answered truly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god and nicodemus says how can a man be born when he's old beginning this confusion right away, the terms of what Jesus is saying. You got to be born again. He's like, ooh, that's weird. What, what are you doing there? I remember when I worked in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, before we moved here, I worked at a hospital, did uh, this ministry there. And, um, and I remember doing Bible studies for medical and dental students And certain passages like this one were so interesting because I would utilize this passage. But when I would read this, they would say to me, oh yeah, that reminds us of our OB rounds. Yeah, some of you in this room know that. It reminds us, and they would term their rounds. They go, oh yeah, I remember when I did OB when I was doing my rotations. Yeah, we called it baby catching. That's what they called it. Like, yeah, I get this. There's terms to Nicodemus popped in his brain. That didn't make sense. He understood one way. He understood the literal terms of it. But what Jesus is talking about is being born again in the spirit. It's this confusion. And again, right after that, Jesus says, I truly, unless one is born of water and spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Wait, 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 wait. If there's one thing that Nicodemus would know about, it is the kingdom of God. But wait, you can't enter unless you have this? Well, I thought I was like the, the foremost leader of how to get into the kingdom of God. That's what Nicodemus thinks. And yet he's confused completely on the terms. It doesn't make sense. I remember listening to this. Uh, uh, I've told you I've listened to this once in a while. But, uh, this American Life, it's an gr- interesting podcast. There was one on kid logic, how kids see the world. And there was one where a, a, a psychologist was sitting on a play, a therapist, she was sitting on a plane with uh, a child. And the child leaned over to her and said, hey when when do we start getting small and she realized what this little kid was saying because she's so used to seeing planes go up in the sky and when they do they just get smaller and she's like there it is small when do we get small and she, it took her a, a long time to figure out what is this kid trying this say. small what are you talking about kid can i find another seat you know um the, the logic of it you understand there's confusion there's an understanding there's an idea for Nicodemus to, to enter in the kingdom of God how, why do I have to be born again? I'm already born into the family of Abraham I'm already a Jew I uphold, I uphold all this I have all this I have my arms around it in fact I, I only have, not only have my arms around it I teach everyone else All the other Pharisees, they come to me for questions. And yet he is the most confused here. In verse nine, it says, how can these things be? He has no clue. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know. How could this be? Here's the thing. Here's the kicker. You and I can know anything and everything about God and not know him at all. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, you have to be born again. God has to actually go in and do a work in you. It's not just this literal work. It's a spiritual work. There's something beyond that. And it's on his terms. It's on his, who he is, not based on what we can do. And isn't that one of the most basic, simple things for us to know? I mean, here's a guy who, who knows, I mean, gosh, how much theology would this guy know? Insane amounts beyond what we might know. And yet, he still adds it up to, if I can get my arms around it, I got this. Can I ask the most simple question? I remember reading this book years ago, and it still is such a great, powerful book. It's written by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. It's like the oldest book. It's about knowing God. It's so good. And one of the first lines in that book is, you think you can know God by knowing a lot about him and yet you don't know him at all how 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 much do we put in terms of just basic re, hey relearning that it is not about how much how many sundays you put in how you're doing in your bible reading How many connect group, how you're connected in your connect group. I mean, all those things. We can do all those things, but you can do a lot of things and yet never know him at all. You could know a lot about him. How much do you know about him? Some of you have had insanely good conversations with. Some of you in this room probably could outstrip me in a lot of things in terms of even, you know, maybe even Bible knowledge. I don't know here's the question is, do we know a lot about him and not know him at all? And isn't that indicative of even our relationships in our own lives? Like we can actually know a lot about one another and never go to the depths of actually knowing someone next to us because we're unwilling. That's what relationship is. It's knowing all those depths. Not just the news sports weather, not just the the business of every day that we need to take care of, but the actual depth of being known and knowing him. Of not just reading a passage and feeling like you did your quiet time and walking away and going, man, I feel good because I did that today. Do you feel good because you did that today and went to church today or that you met Jesus today? That's what's being said here. You can know all these things and not know him at all. It's basic relearning. It's basic, isn't it? I mean, this isn't like off the charts. He's talking to someone who's way above us theologically, and yet he talks about this. And the thing that he talks about here, even in in, in, uh, Born of Water and Spirit, in verse 4, He's not saying you need to get baptized. He's actually, in that passage, the water and spirit is not baptism. It's it's referring back to Ezekiel 36, a a prophetic book that many of you may not have even read, but is so rich in meaning and beauty about how the Holy Spirit comes in and cleanses your heart and regenerates you, renews you, makes you new. It actually says that he gives you, replaces your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying that that God himself comes into you and does a work that we can't do. And that's why he moves not only just from from God's kingdom but to God himself. Even further, he gives, he tries to help him out. Jesus tries to give him a couple illustrations, right? In verse eight, he starts, he says, "'The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, "'but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes.'" So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I don't know if you saw this uh, even during the Hurricane Florence and all that stuff, but there was a YouTube that went out about a weatherman who was super exaggerating the winds. Did you see this YouTube? There's a guy on a microphone. He's just just bracing. He just keeps doing this. The coat's pulled over him. He's like, it's coming in hard. And then two people just walk behind him like this. They're like like and it's all over youtube you know they've redone it and they put things in it's hilarious but he's totally incredibly exaggerating it and they just put it on a loop so you can see these guys just walking with their pockets and they're like just rain jackets and shorts they don't even care and he's like ah you know he can't it's it's unbelievable that that is the feeling that is the idea of what nicodemus is wanting to get at it, it, look Jesus is trying to give an illustration that you cannot harness the wind. Like you can't over you can't control God and his purposes. You can't take him and make him do what you want him to do. And and, and this is another place where he's completely confused. Notice that's where Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Because for him, all his life, he's been in control. I mean, when we when we did that confession and we talked about the the law's loud thunder, Nicodemus himself would hear something like that, recall the beauty of Mount Sinai, but say, Yeah, the law, we uphold that. That's what I keep. That's what I teach. I mean, it's hushed by not by God's mercy, but by my control over it. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, You're not in control. Take a moment someday, do, do this at some point. Stand on your deck or porch or front you know, steps or something and when, it, when you find yourself in a breeze and just sit and watch the trees. Sit and watch the wind that's fascinating. Think about it, you never really see it. You only see its effects or you see things in it blowing around. You never see it. It's crazy, it's beautiful. It creates glorious noise in the rustling of leaves, and it creates violent storms up on a shore. It is that powerful. And Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to say, you think you can control God, and you can't. He moves where he wishes. He is not controlled by your strength. And and I wonder how much for us, we allow ourselves to just kind of go, you know what, God, I can't can't control this salvation. It's a great relearning for you and for me of saying, you cannot grasp the wind. You cannot control God's spirit. This is the beauty of what he does within you. And if you could, it would be scary. Here's the reason. is because his spirit is what changes you when you don't want to Change. You know all the ways that you kind of walk around and you think, gosh, I wish I was different here. Or I see this in my life and I want it different. Do you know what actually does the work in your heart, in your life, in your even personality to do those things? Is the spirit. What what, what can get in you deeper than anything in the world? This is why God is talking about. the, The most deepest parts of you is that the spirit, it's that God himself gets in you and transforms you in those ways that you and I cannot do and even allows us and this is what it means to, to see to see them because for the most part many of us we want to control our situation we want to control the circumstances and we want to control ourselves and yet we know we're not and what would it look like for us to, to step back and say if he's really that in control of what's over my heart how would it allow me rest to see the things I don't want to see and even step into those things? And even with a God who cares enough to enter into places that I wouldn't want him to enter. He's in control. And here's the other thing that he gives Nicodemus that is so kind of him. This is, this is where Jesus, if you read this chapter and you read further chapters when he encounters people, Uh, it it can be easily missed about how Jesus so kindly gives illustrations and steps into and helps people understand in the place they were. He he quotes this, and it might be a little confusing. But he says, if I've told you earthly things, verse 12, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now that's like, whoa, what are you quoting there, Jesus? But for an, an amazing Old Testament scholar like himself, he would immediately remember this is a narrative from Numbers chapter 21. You know, the book that we all read, Numbers, all the time. Numbers chapter 21, when the, the people of God disobeyed God, not just disobeyed him, but they thought, they kept saying, God, you're not, you're not worth it. Like, I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back. We, we, you brought us out, but now we're hungry. We don't have any place to stay. What's going to happen with our children? And it's easy for us to read those, those passages and kind of put ourselves above the people of Israel as if we wouldn't complain, as if we wouldn't be scared. Not at all. But he's saying... Let me help you understand, Nicodemus, by quoting from something that you would know about what it means to think that you have things right or think that you know what would make your life right. And what God does is he sends what are called fiery serpents in Numbers chapter 21, and they begin biting the people. In order to be healed, it's kind of this weird thing. In order to be healed, he says, make this bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and when you look at it, you will be healed. Now, that's weird, right? But here's what God was doing. It was fascinating. In that time, the serpent, not just fiery, fiery serpent was a term used, borrowed from Egypt. And what God was doing was sending, now, they had several gods, lower G gods in their midst, but the serpent was one of the greatest, if not the greatest. It was actually even on, if you see Egyptian, artwork. It's even on their crowns, the serpent of Egyptian pharaohs. And this is why. Because God said, and this is fascinating, in order for you to understand you really want to be healed, I'm going to use this God that you think you worship against and cause you to believe in me and trust in me. This is actually something that I was looking up Is interesting. It was called that the um, Egyptians used to do this with their enemies, gods. They'd put them on poles and they'd carry them into battle so that the enemy would see the God and go, wait, how are you using that against us? It was called sympathetic magic. It was called controlling an adversary through manipulation of a a replication. God was saying it to me and he said, all you have to do is look at this and you'll be healed. All you have to do is look. There's no work. So then you need to do look at the serpent and be healed. And Jesus says, you remember that passage? Here's another event that is coming that you are to look to and look up to, and you will be healed. And that is the Son of Man. That is the title for the Messiah. That the Son of Man will be lifted up, just as the serpent was. And Crucified on a cross. That's what he meant by lifted up. He said, here's what he's saying essentially. He's saying, the cross that all of us deserve for our punishment, he puts his son on that for us to look to and be healed. Basic relearning. The way that we have all gone astray, the way that we've all Look for other gods, things to heal us. I mean, this is the uniqueness of Christianity. This is the difference. It's not just any God put on a pole. It's that Jesus goes on the cross to be lifted up. And that the cross, the one hanging right behind me, in all its beauty and splendor, that's actually what we deserve. When we talk about we are washed in his blood, the blood is what is necessary. It is our blood that was demanded, and yet God does the opposite. Instead, to his disciples at the end of his last breath, he doesn't say, like many other even philosophers who say, strive without ceasing or go forward and earn it. He says, it is finished. That blew Nicodemus's categories, and it should blow yours too. It blew his categories to the fact that he could not earn it. He could not hold on to it. His grip was not tight enough. It was not about his grip, it was about God's. And he couldn't earn it through his own bearing of any sort of cross, it had to be someone else's. It blew his categories. He couldn't understand it. And it wasn't just God's kingdom that threw him over. And it wasn't just God's picture of His Son, Himself. It was actually God's love. You know, this is that, maybe this is that moment where I should have it on a poster since it's a football Sunday. It's always held in the end zone. You know, John 3, 16, right? What is that, what's that verse really saying? It's saying this. It's saying And this is why it would be so cataclysmic for Nicodemus. God so loved the world. It's not just about, to Nicodemus, he's thinking, it's about these people who earn it this way and who have it down. God is saying it's for every tongue, tribe, and nation who believe. It's for you. His love, the scope of his love is so broad, but it does come through who? his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Those two things are so incredibly powerful, so transformative to this very man himself that Nicodemus, who came at night, who came in the dark in chapter 19 of the same book, same letter of John, same narrative accounts, there were two people that would take Jesus down off the cross after he was crucified. And one of them was Nicodemus. He would no longer be a quiet, hidden disciple. When he could see when Jesus was finally, as it is written here, lifted up, the one who would help take him down and put him in burial would be the greatest Pharisee in the land. Because he finally realized He couldn't control. And he wasn't afraid. And that love that Jesus had that's as much for the world as much for him transformed his life. That's what this table's about. Don't come to this table, please. Please don't come to this table if you just think it's something you just kind of earn or do. Please come to this table only if you recognize that this table is set with the body and blood of Jesus. There's a reason that the early church was was ridiculed by Rome and others saying, y'all are a bunch of cannibals. They would say that. Because the early church, as we do now, believed that this is not just any other meal. This is actually a taste of the body and blood of the one who washes us. And do you know why you consume it? Because you don't pour it on you. It washes you from the inside out. Because that's the only way true cleansing really happens. is for Jesus to get in there and to do the work. Hey, this is the great relearning. This is not a table for all of us that have it together. This is the great relearning. Let's stand together, if you will.